in medicine, a lot of times there's things you can't do for your patients. You're stuck or for some reason you just, there's nothing else you can do, but at least you can come back to the lab and you can keep working on that experiment and you can in some way help the future patients that you're going to take care of. That's Dr. Steffi Barbian. Today, I'm Behind the Microscope. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today, we have with us Dr. Steffi Barbian, who is a third-year neonatology fellow here at Emory University. She received her MD from Michigan State and went on to do her pediatric residency at Carolina's Medical Center in Charlotte, North Carolina, before she ultimately joined the fellowship program here at Emory. Before fellowship, Dr. Barbian had not had significant experience at the bench since undergrad and really pursued opportunities in wet lab research during her fellowship training for the first time. Today, she shares with us her journey from medical school to finding a passion for neonatology to discovering basic science research and her ultimate goals as a scientist and a clinician. Without further ado, here's our conversation with Dr. Steffi Barbian. Uh, so tell us a little bit about yourself, where you are right now. You're in fellowship? Yes, so I'm a neonatology fellow here at Emory. I'm in my third year. Out of how many years? Which is my last year. Okay, congrats. Um, yes, thank you. I um, went to medical school at Michigan State, and um, after that, I did my pediatric residency at Carolina's Medical Center in Charlotte, North Carolina, and I ended up staying on for an extra year, and, and I did a chief residency year there, um, and then I came here for my fellowship, and it's a three-year fellowship, so I'm almost done. Nice. That's awesome. What was it that like really got you excited about this specialty? So I, um, as a resident, I started in the NICU in August, so it was pretty early on uh, in my first year of residency, and um, I was very scared of mm -hmm. the babies. They were mm -hmm. tiny. I was mm -hmm. scared to hurt them. I didn't know how to examine them and move them, um, and I had really incredible nurses um, in the NICU that taught me a lot about the babies, and the attendings were the best attendings I've ever met. I mean, they were very compassionate. They were funny. They, you can clearly see that they loved what they did. Um, and so that right away really um, kind of brought me into the NICU. And then early on my second year, I um, one of my patients in the NICU died. And that was the first patient that I had ever lost. Mm -hmm. And it was, um, it was really, really hard. And so for a while I thought, I don't know if I can emotionally do this kind of job and work in a critical care unit and have patients of mine that die. Um, and throughout my residency, I kind of just kept comparing everything to the NICU. Mm -hmm. And um, it's a place where you get to do procedures and you're in critical care, but you also take care of patients for months and months. And so you develop relationships with their families. Mm -hmm. So it's a great place. And so that's ultimately, even though they're – Babies in the NICU are really, really sick. Yes. Um, and then one time we were talking about this and you said that basically you just kind of tweak things. Yes. And that you really liked that. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. So um, as you can imagine, babies that are in the NICU are often very small. Um, and so we make very slow changes specifically to their diet. Um, and so each day we calculate you know, how many mLs per kilo per day of feeds they should mm -hmm. be on and 
if they're tolerating their current <clears throat> regimen of breast milk, then we can go up to more. But it's really a small increase each day. And the residents often laugh because, you know, it's a very small amount, but we get very excited when the babies tolerate it and are able to go up because although it's a small change, it ultimately leads them to be closer to going home. Mm-hmm. So Yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, all right, so then to set up really what 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 we want to talk to you about is you did medical school, no um, PhD. Correct. And then uh, did you have research experience before, like in undergrad or during so, med school? In undergrad, I spent a summer at the Moffitt Cancer Center um, at USF in Tampa, Florida. And so I, I did do a summer working in their lab, and I learned to do Western blot and okay. things like that. It was a very... Um, very basic kind of introduction to the lab. And what that kind was, of work was it? Um, so I actually worked with HDAC inhibitors, which oh, is really, really funny. Yes. Um, and really it was just very basic things like learning to do Western blots and things like that. Mm-hmm. And so, and then that was it. That was the last time I had been in the lab until fellowship. Wow. Yes. So then, so then you came into fellowship and then I don't know what, is there a research requirement for fellowship? There is. Yeah. So for all pediatric, um, fellowships you're required to pick a research project and all fellowships in pediatrics are three years long and two of those years have to be devoted to research and one is to your clinical time a lot a lot yeah more than the clinical time how many people i guess how many people does that fellowship take let's say at emory so at emory we have seven uh fellows in neonatology okay and then how many of them went into like a classic wet lab basic science so Currently, I'm the only one in my fellowship doing that. But when I came on as a first-year fellow, there was one other fellow doing basic science research. Okay. So it's not very common, at least here. But there are programs where it's more common. What do most people do? Most people do clinical research. Um, so why didn't you do that? So in residency, I was involved in a clinical research project with one of my mentors. And we looked at um, thrombocytopenia in babies under 32 weeks. And that was a great experience. That was the first introduction to clinical research that I had. And um, starting fellowship, I felt like this is the last time I'm going to get a chance to work in the lab. I've already done clinical research. I've done some quality improvement research in residency. And so I just wanted to try it mm-hmm. because truly, as you know, once you start your career as a physician, no one's going to give you a career to go back into the lab if you don't have that prior experience. Mm-hmm. And so... So that's how it happened. It just sounded like mm-hmm. fun to yeah. get into the lab and like, yeah. And then, um, so then you picked, so tell us a little bit about what you're studying now. Yep. Um, and kind of how you got there. So um, I'm studying how the maternal diet during pregnancy affects gut development. Um, specifically looking at um, butyrate and the maternal ingestion of butyrate during pregnancy and how that uh, may be protective in a um, colitis model in the offspring. And so when I came into fellowship, I knew right away that I wanted to study necrotizing enterocolitis, which is a disease that affects uh, about 10%, maybe less, of preterm babies. Mm -hmm. Why were you so interested in neck? Uh, So the baby that died in residency was from that. Okay. Um, And so to me, I, you know, became very interested in that disease and trying to understand how can we prevent this. And that's, that patient really kind of catapulted me into wanting to study this. And so... Um, so I knew I wanted to study that and, um, 
Dr. Ravi Patel, he interviewed me during fellowship, and he also did a lot of work both in basic and clinical research um, in necrotizing enterocolitis. And so I kind of uh, spent a lot of time talking to him about it and to my program director, and they um, they started leading me to talk to different people mm-hmm. about what kind of labs are here at Emory. Um, and Dr. Saul Carpin led me to talk to Dr. Renault Jones, mm-hmm. who's my current mentor. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was interesting because Renault doesn't study neck. Right. Um, and he's never had a fellow or um, anything like that in his lab. And so I think for him, too, it's probably been an interesting experience. Mm-hmm. But um, we... Um, in fellowship, you have a scholarly oversight committee, which you can also pick. And so you have your mentor and you have two other people in your committee who can be from your division, but one person has to be outside of your division. Okay. And so, and those are um, clinical people or? It can be whoever you okay. want it to be. And so for me, I have um, Dr. Ravi Patel, Dr. Uh, Patty Denning, who has also done mm-hmm. um, uh, basic science research in neck, and then Renault. And so those are the three people in my oversight committee. And so really the first meeting was talking about what can I feasibly study in Renault's lab. Um, and I'm not sure who came up with the idea of butyrate, but we started talking about butyrate and then studying essentially what I'm yeah. looking at now. I mean, butyrate makes sense because it's such a ubiquitous right. m- small molecule that we know is microbial derived. Yeah. So um, so initially you, you did just fed butyrate. Correct. So, and you saw, I mean, we're not going to get scooped here, but but um, basically you had some positive results. I did, yes. How do you think you can, how do you think that informs then clinical practice, like, you know, whatever, way down the road? Is that a feasible thing to uh, give pregnant mothers short-chain fatty acids or yeah. increase their fiber intake? And is there any, like, clinical um, evidence for that? So I don't think there's any clinical evidence for that right now. I I was super excited when I saw positive results. Um, And I think it is possibly, I think it is feasible um, to potentially recommend different sorts of diets for pregnant women, specifically women who are at risk for having preterm deliveries, which would be women who have preeclampsia or um, whose babies have growth restrictions. So there are some women who we know, hey, this mom might deliver early. And so I'm excited because I think it, it is possible that what I'm looking at may change how we, re- you know, make recommendations for these women. Mm-hmm. So so we sort of already talked about this, but um, I feel like a lot of MDs and MD-PhDs I talk to that do basic science, they always come back to this idea that being, being in the lab makes them better clinicians um, and being clinicians makes them way better mm. in the lab. So have you felt any of that as you've gone through training? Obviously, I think you're, it sounds like already your clinical experience has has informed your Definitely. Uh, research experience. Definitely. Um, I think... I think my clinical experience will always affect how I think about things in the lab, right? Because um, I can think about my patients and the way that things happened... Um, and so for that, I, I think, yes, I think, um, a lot of people that I know that are, that are physician scientists have also mentioned to me that being 
100% clinical is too much for them, meaning the job mm. is too stressful. Um, mm. And I sort of feel like the same way for me. You know, I, just like I did with my first patient, I had a hard time when after he died and I really, um, I really get attached to my patients. And so I think in some ways, being in the lab and having a little bit less clinical time is probably a healthy thing for me. Um, it's another way that I can exercise my desire to help them, um, but in a way that's not so attached to them. Mm-hmm. So maybe it helps with like burnout. Yeah. Yeah. For me, I think it does. Yeah. Um, that's awesome. There's also, I think, in medicine, a lot of times there's things you can't do for your patients. You're stuck or for some reason you just mm-hmm. – there's nothing else you can do. But at least you can come back to the lab and you can keep working on that experiment. And you can, in some way, help the future patients mm-hmm. that you're going to take care of. Yeah. And it's totally different, you know, approach. So, right. So, so if you're – right. I think that's a good way of thinking about it because people get stuck in the lab too all the time. Yes. And so it must be – so like when you're stuck in the lab, is it kind of nice to go back to clinic? It is, yeah. yes. <laughs> yes, yes, it is. It's nice to, to be able to do both, definitely. Mm-hmm. All right. So then tell us a little bit about what have been the challenges of coming into totally a wet lab Yes. Um, with I don't know how many years it's been since you did – you know, Western blotting. A long time. Yeah. Probably seven years, yeah. maybe more. Yeah. Um, it was, it's been a, it's been a really good experience. I think the hardest part is that my schedule doesn't allow me to be here for a long time in the mm-hmm. meeting the lab. And so um, as you can, as you know, I often leave. I'm here for a month and then I leave. Um, and I also have other responsibilities when I'm on my research months. I give lectures to residents. I give lectures to medical students. Um, I have my own lectures to go to, and I still take call, which is overnight call. And so it's it's hard to get my experiment going um, and not kind of not lose um, track of what I'm mm-hmm. doing. That's the hardest part. <clears throat> and then um, – I feel like I've had one four-month stretch that I was here, and that was really helpful. I feel like I got a lot of stuff done then. And then when you come back, it's kind of hard to get started again. And um, Mm -hmm. so I think that's probably the hardest part. And then obviously I come in with really no experience. I had no experience how to pick up a mouse, how to weigh a mouse. I'm still working on learning how to scruff a mouse. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm scared of mice, by the way, which is is really funny because that's what I do. I work with mice. Uh, But my fear is... It's starting to, to go away. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's hard because you have – I have very little experience. And so really kind of asking people to help you and teach you how to do things. And I've been really lucky that in our lab, I mean, everyone is super nice and everyone um, is willing to help and teach me how to do different things. And so, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. So – I think people think about this more, probably unfairly, for people who did an MD-PhD and then kind of come in and do research track. Mm -hmm. How do you Mm -hmm. think, uh, you know, on the lab side, really, we could support your schedule better? So people who are MDs who have clinical responsibilities but still have good ideas and good experiments cooking, how, how do you think we could make that 
synergize a little bit better? Um, so I have met a couple of people when I went to conferences to present my research who are fellows, same as me, so are fellows working in a basic science lab. And essentially what happens when they go on service, meaning they go to the NICU or wherever they're going for a month, um, people kind of take on their experiment and continue to do it, um, which I think would be helpful. I, in some ways, also don't like that because I mm-hmm. don't want people to do my work for me, but right. I feel like in order to be successful and get a lot of things done, sometimes that's what it takes. And so I have seen, I've, had, I've met a couple of fellows from UAB and Duke, and that's essentially what happens is when they go on service, someone else is doing their Someone's experiments there. yeah and then when they come back they catch them up on what's happened essentially and then they take over for the amount of time that they're there um but it's hard just like i said because we have we have a lot of other responsibilities unfortunately and so which i mean they're important things that that we have to do as fellows but um mm-hmm. i think that's how other programs are successful at it mm-hmm. and then after fellowship your schedule will change, right? You won't have yes. these big blocks of time in clinic. Yeah. So, um, so I'm currently applying for jobs. So I am applying to be a physician scientist, and so um, the way that that works is you get a job offer with um, how much clinical time mm-hmm. they want you to have. Do you have um, any idea roughly what that usually is, or? So what I've been told by people who are physician scientists within neonatology is that in order to be successful in the lab, you really need about eight weeks, eight to 10 weeks of clinical time. Um, That really any more than that, it's very hard to be, to get your grants, to get Mm -hmm. all those things in, right? And to be successful. And so if you're offered more than that, specifically a lot more than that, then it's probably not, you're not going to be successful at mm-hmm. what you want to do. Because you're just going to be slammed in clinic all right. the time. Yeah. A lot of programs are integrating re- mandatory research time into medical school. Mm-hmm. So we have, we have this at Emory, mm-hmm. this discovery phase. Do you, did, I don't know, did you have that? I did not have that. Do you think we should be integrating research into everyone's MD training? I think we should. Yeah. I mean, I think if I had had time in the lab in in medical school, then maybe I would have, I don't know, that would have changed. Mm, I think I would have enjoyed it just like I do now, you know. Um, So even if you'd had like six months, but it would have been six months of 100% being in the lab. Right. You think maybe you wouldn't necessarily have gotten stuff done because six months is short time, but you think that would have sort of greased the wheels a little bit for you? Yeah, I think so. Hmm. And then I think same with residency. I think if your residency programs can provide you with time to do research, that it's expected of you to do research, but really more protected time, then that would be that would be great as well. I know you can have like research electives in residency, right? You you have so many electives that you can choose, um, and you can have a research elective. I don't know how many research electives you can have, but that's really just a month. Um, yeah, which is. Really not hard. a lot of time yeah so a lot of people especially that do clinical research and residency you just do it when you're done with your clinical time in the afternoons in the evenings you kind of just work on it when you can mm-hmm. so then let's talk about what your next steps are right you're applying right. now yes um what would be the optimal situation for you so um i think like i mentioned having Maybe I think I could do eight to 12 weeks of clinical time a year. Um, 
I think more importantly, being somewhere where I have um, good mentorship. Mm -hmm. And um, that is going to be really important for me to get K grants and for me to be able to to be successful uh, in my career. And so I think that part is probably really important is finding people that um, they don't necessarily have to do what you're doing, but um, understand the process and can can help to be your mentor. Right. Absolutely. It's like the most important thing for literally every, yes. every phase of training. Yes. Um, all right. And then what, you know, given unlimited amount of grant funding, what, oh what direction would you take your research? What do you think is most exciting, either clinically or, you know, in, in yeah. unanswered questions in basic science? I mean, I think what I would really like to do is do my experiments in a neck model. Um, neck models are <clears throat> traditionally very difficult, mm-hmm. um, and necrotizing enterocolitis is a disease that's multifactorial. It's not just one thing that causes neck. It's a lot of things. And so that's really hard to uh, reproduce in the lab. Um, but, you know, we've, I've seen good results with the butyrate in six-week-old offspring with a colitis model. And so it would be great if I could test it in a neck model, mm-hmm. which takes a lot of money. It takes a lot of mice. Uh, there, and it's a lot of work. Are there any good mouse neck models currently? So the one that I had spoken with Dr. Dunning about was the TNBS model, which okay. is one where you um, do do a tnbs enema on the pups um and then you could vodge feed tnbs at the same time and then 48 hours later you have neck so that's something that was published a couple of years ago and it's been um the last time i looked there's like eight or nine papers that have done that same model uh, since then so i feel like that might be something that's doable the other neck models are gavage feeding mice every three hours formula which is a lot of work right Right. that's um that's a lot of work right and and in that model you you don't have 100 percent penetrance so that's not great either Mm -hmm. like you need to have a model that if you're going to spend that much time in the lab feeding baby mice you would hope that it would work right so that's my thought i would i would really like to test it out on a neck model to Mm -hmm. see does the maternal diet at all protect against neck in mm-hmm. preterm in a preterm neck model mm-hmm. awesome all right well then let's shift a little bit towards what kind of keeps you balanced you know you've got you've got enough to balance you've got yeah research and then you've got clinic and then you've got call and teaching and all this other stuff yeah. but let's talk a little bit about hobbies family yeah. how are you avoiding burnout in other ways um, let's see. So I have two kids and, um, I should say me and my husband have two kids. <clears throat> They're six and three year old boys. They're crazy. There's, Sounds like, yes, our house uh, is very loud. <laughs> there's always a lot of wrestling. All hugs lead to wrestling, you know, like yeah. there's just, um, <laughs> but I, you know, I think that having a family, um, does kind of help to ground me and it helps to, um, uh, put things into perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, so even when I've had a hard day or things aren't going well, going home and spending time with them helps a lot. Um, it can also make things a little bit more stressful, though, you know, because you, you have to balance the needs of your family. Um, I have started meditating, which has been mm. – it's been interesting. How long have you been doing um, that? Probably just a couple of weeks, actually. Yeah. yeah. But it's something that I talked to one of my attendings about that she started doing. Um and so far, I, I really like it. Does it help? Yeah. Like, 
Yeah, yeah. definitely. I feel like I just – I feel less stressed about things in general. The mm. days that I'm able to meditate, even mm-hmm. if it's three or five minutes, mm-hmm. I feel I feel better. Nice. Um, anything else that you do? Um, let's see. I try to exercise if I can. Mm-hmm. And also those days yeah, I feel better. Yeah, you said you were a big runner, right? Yes, yeah. I used to run in college I, um, and in high school, but I have – I have hip dysplasia, I found out mm-hmm. at the end of my college career. And so I am not allowed to run anymore because I have arthritis in my hip, that which sucks. is not fun. Yes. Sorry. No, it's okay. I've, I've found other ways to exercise. Um, they're not as exciting or as fun as running, but it does help. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay. And then this is the big question. Okay. This is sort of what we've been ending every podcast with. Um, so if you... So let's say we're 40 years from now and you look back on your entire career slash your family life and everything. What is it you sort of want to be able to look back and say, that was my legacy or these are my accomplishments? Hmm. You should have given this to me before. I have to think about this. It's sort of better this way. Um... I mean, I I guess there's two things. I mean, because as a mom and as a physician, I, you know, I feel like I have kind of two big roles in my life. And um, so obviously my kids are a big one, right? In 40 years, like I want my kids to be adults that are (laughs) wrestling. (laughs) You know, I think I just want them to be happy with their life, you know? And so I hope that. I hope that they're happy in 40 years. Yeah. I mean, they're happy now, but I hope they're still yeah. happy. You right, know? right, right, right. Um, and then as far as my career, gosh, um, you know, I I connect with a lot of families um, and I try my best to, to help them where they are because it's a really stressful thing to have your baby in the NICU. Um, and so really, I just hope that I make their lives a little bit, a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Um same with babies mm-hmm. you know they're they're we get really attached to our patients we love them very much and so um i just hope that we can make their outcomes better for babies with, mm-hmm. that are born preterm mm-hmm. whether that's basic science or translational science yeah. or clinical practice yeah yeah well i don't think anyone can argue with that goal how about going the other direction so if you were to go back to when you started med school mm-hmm. is there anything you would have done differently um, I probably, oh goodness, I was going to say study less, but that's terrible advice. Keep studying, guys. Yeah. Um. <laughs> Step one's coming, or I don't know who's no, listening to kidding. this. No, I'm just kidding. It's just no, us listening to this. Studying so. is really important. Um, I mean, I think as far as from, from a lab perspective, um, I think I, early on, I should have kept like my notes better on how to do certain things and why I did certain things. So from a, in lab. Yeah. So my first year being here, I mm-hmm. didn't really take notes very much. And now I've realized how important that is. Yeah. Um, I think you're not alone in that. Uh, yeah. Uh, lament. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I, I'm happy with, with the way that things have turned out for me. And so I feel like, you know, life is, life is interesting, but it'll work out in the end. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much. We really appreciate you coming on and sharing your perspective. Thank you. 
Okay, everyone, that is our conversation for this week. Thanks again to Dr. Barbian for sharing her story with us. And if you enjoyed this conversation, please rate, subscribe, and recommend us to others that you think would appreciate this content. As always, I need to thank the amazing executive producers who actually make this podcast possible. Joe Banke for co-hosting and audio production. Carrie Jansen for coordinating all of our social media. Michael Sayeg for providing feedback on the content and coordinating interviews. And Brian Robinson, our faculty advisor. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with another episode. See you then.